Well, you are here on a special day. We're taking a break from the series we've been on. We've been in a Nehemiah series. We'll pick that up again, although we're through all 10 gates now, so we're going to move on with the rest of Nehemiah. But today, we're going to speak on um, an Easter subject. Now, this is like a lot of pastors love the Easter sermon, right? Because they know they're going to have a crowd, typically, and they like to really, you know, come in with some kind of a hard-hitting sermon. That's not me, those of you who know me. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do a little bit different, but that those of you who know me probably were expecting that as well. I, I want to start by saying those of you who do know me know that one of the, the pivotal events in my life lately was I got a new German Shepherd puppy. Uh, that's this guy here. Um, but he's not, uh, he's not here today. Don't go looking for him. That was a pose picture and right out of here before he could squat. So, um, but, uh, the, the, but he's not up here because he's cute. He's up here because he's weird. So... Um, I got to tell you, this is weird. I was thinking about this because we have spent a small fortune on chew things of every 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 kind, right? I mean, they they have more shapes and things for chew thing toys, not toys necessarily, but chew chew events, you know, because you want to keep those teeth busy on something else. You know, we have all kinds of stuff. We have stuff for him that looks so good I would eat it, you know, uh, Slim Jims and things like that. And like I'll, I'll hand him to him and out of politeness, he'll take it in his mouth and instantly drop it, look down at the ground, look back at me and say, yeah, I'm not eating that. You know, I'm, I am not putting my dentures on that. That's simply not going to happen, which is fine. You know, you want to say, well, my dog has refined taste. But then he goes out in the yard and digs up a rock, you know, from the mulch and licks it clean and comes in with it and throws it around like, look at this. I'm thinking, you picked the weirdest things to chew on. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like, like master, like pop. Not that I chew rocks. I mean, I don't want you to get me all there. But, but those of you who've been coming to Spirit Chapel, you'll know that things come to my mind and, and like I can't let go of them, right? There's weird, weird things. And, and I can't let go. And a lot of my sermons have just gone off these weird moments when I can't stop chewing on this part of the Bible that's just not making sense to me or just stuck there for some reason. And that's what's going to happen today, just warning you. I've never heard this sermon before. Maybe you have. I don't know. But uh, this is the passage I got stuck on. This isn't Mark. Um, and it says, they brought him to the place in Golgotha. This is the crucifixion, which is translated place of the skull. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And the inscription charge against him, how's this for, this is his crime, the king of the Jews. You know, and, and one of the other pe people said that some of the Jews said, uh, don't put that, put, he said he was king of the Jews. And then scripture said what it says, it says. You know, so he must have been uh, somebody who had actually heard Jesus. But they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered among the transgressors. And that's actually a scripture from Isaiah but here's what got me stuck. Why was Jesus crucified between two thieves? Now, I get that sometimes things just are the way they are, right? And there's nothing we can do about it. And that's, you know, sometimes Christians try to make something special out of something that just is, right? And you can, I guess some people say, well, he just was, you know, or whatever. Uh, but I don't believe that. And here's why I don't believe that. I don't believe that because this event is a single most defining event in a war that's been raging for thousands of years. This is it. This is like the biggest event. Uh, and there's two sides fighting, and this event is pivotal. This is the most pivotal event in the war. There's no way you can convince me there's anything that happened in that moment that wasn't set up by one side or the other. And I believe that this was actually set up from the other side. Because Satan had been trying to stop this day from happening since before Jesus was born. 
right? He went to, he went to Joseph and tried to, tried to shame him away. Like, oh, you'll be, you'll be ridiculed and humiliated. He tried to take Jesus' human father out of the picture before he was even born. After he was born, he used Herod to kill off two-year-olds and down and to try to kill the baby. You know, and they got away because the angel warned him. And then, of course, we know that after he's baptized, Satan approaches him in the wilderness when he's weak and tries to get him to, to give up on the purpose of his visit. On and on throughout, and he infiltrates uh, his disciples. He gets one. He tries to get Peter, by the way, but, but he doesn't. But he really tries. Jesus actually says, Satan has asked for you by name, Peter. You know, he's trying to, he's been trying to stop this day from happening, but it happened anyway. And I believe that the purpose of the thief on the left and the thief on the right was to distract us from the Messiah in the center. And, and I believe that he thought, if I can do this, then, then they'll say, well, he was crucified with a bunch of other thieves, and liars and thieves. That's what he was. And that's, and that's what happened. And, and that's why he was crucified between them. But here's the point. Today, to this day, he's still trying to get us distracted from Jesus. It's amazing what Christians focus on instead of Jesus. You know, I've mentioned this before. When we opened the church, I was surprised we're doing through, you know, before I staff took over the music, I was in charge of the music and I was trying to pick songs fully 80%. If you count, discount the hymns and discount the special Christmas and Easter songs, just the normal songs, 80% or more never mention the word Jesus anywhere. It's amazing how Jesus is almost out of the Christian church. You go into a lot of the modern churches, they won't show up, they won't have a cross. And, and they try to like really diminish it. And, and here's the problem with that. This is exactly what he's trying to do here. That's what Satan tried to do at the beginning with the two thieves. Uh, we kind of continue on that work a little bit because we're trying to distract people from Jesus. And I have no idea why. Because we have to understand that once he's moved your attention off of the Messiah in the middle, He's begun what he needs to do, which is deceive you. And you also need to understand deception does not happen at once. It happens by degrees. If you've ever met somebody who's deceived, and I have, you know, I'm not just talking about Christianity, I'm anything, right? And they just like, like, how can you believe this? You know, just unbelievable. They didn't start there, right? They started here and they slowly got moved to there. When deception finally sets in, it's, it's been a process. The first part of that process is having Jesus take your eyes off of Jesus. If we can take our eyes off Jesus, everything else is possible. As long as we keep Jesus in the middle, we don't look left and don't look right, which the Bible tells us all throughout the Old Testament, don't look to the left, don't look to the right, but we focus on Jesus, we'll be okay. Distraction is the most common, one of the most common ploys that the enemy uses. I'm going to show you another time that this is used very effectively, and it happens just a little bit before the crucifixion. It takes place in the book of John. Now, I don't have time to set all this up. John does a pretty good job of it, though. Uh, he starts by saying there was a certain man who was sick, and his name was Lazarus, and, and, uh, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So Lazarus, Martha, Mary. Now, actually, there's like three vignettes with these three people in them in the book of John, one right after the other. But here's kind of something odd. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, writing it in, in, in retrospect, he's putting this in there because he wants us to know exactly who he's talking about. And he's very precise. A lot of times the Bible has this, you know, verbiage that comes back and resays what it already said. That's because they're trying to drive home a point so we don't miss it, right? So that's whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that might seem odd, but what they're actually saying is we aren't strangers, we're good friends of yours. Now, we don't see a lot of friends of Jesus. We see the disciples and his family, 
They must have had other friends, but we really don't get a chance to have any visibility into that, except in the Gospel of John. John takes the time to tell us, by the way, he had these three really good friends. They were brothers and sisters, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He would often stop at their house and eat when he passed through. They lived right outside of Jerusalem. And so it was a great place to stop right before he enters the city. And he would sleep there. And they, they took care of him. They had a room set aside for him. They'd feed his disciples. They were very, very good friends of his. They didn't just people who knew him. These were friends. And they're saying, Lazarus, your friend, your very, very good friend is sick. And so you could say they're presuming upon a friendship here. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've had friends do that, but it's okay because they're friends. You know, I know, I know some people uh, who I've known for many, many years, like Hinchy. You know, we've been together for many, many years. If he calls me up and asks me to do something and I'm busy, but he needs it, he can call upon the friendship to do that, right? And I'll do that. And some of you, I'll try, but if I got other things, I might shuffle you. But friends can make certain demands on us, can't they? Because there's, it's been give and take over the years. And so they're saying that. They're, they're, they're trying, and they're desperate, because he's sick unto death, really. And they're desperate, and so they're kind of saying, hey, we got a friendship with you, and we want to kind of call that marker in. We're friends of yours, and he is sick. After this, he said to disciples, let us go to Judea again. Okay, so he's going to go back to Judea. This is a big deal, because right before this, the Jews tried to kill him there. And they laughed, right? And so the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you. Remember that? The stones, the, the mob, the, the shouting. And, and, and you could go back there again. And Jesus says, well, look, there's 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. And then he tells all that. And they say, basically he's saying, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. Lazarus will be fine. I'll wake him when I get there. That's where we're going to go. I'm going to go. And don't worry about the Jews. They're trying to kill me, but, you know. They've been doing that for years. And so he's, he's okay with it. The disciples, however, are absolutely not at all uh, okay with this. Now, even though Jesus spoke of the death, uh, they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. And so then Jesus says, okay, look, you weren't catching it. Let me really, really plain. Lazarus is dead. He's, he's dead. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad for your sakes, though, that I was not there. Now, what happened was, before all this, after he said, don't worry about it, it's not going to end in death, he spent an extra time where he was. When he says, look, don't worry, this is going to end in death, although, you know, we know it's going to, he says, don't worry about that. And he says, so when he heard that he was sick, he didn't stay two days more in the place where he was. So here's your friend, he's sick, he's going to die, and he says, ah, he won't die. And he stays where he is. And it's always that word so that bothered me. Because Lazarus was sick, so because he was sick, he stayed for two more days. You would expect it to be something more like, unfortunately, Jesus had prior commitments and could not leave for two days. But that's not what the Bible says. It says so, because of, therefore, that's what that word translates as, because he was sick, he deliberately stayed for two more days. He said, don't worry, this isn't going to end a death. Don't worry about it. After he dies is when Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Judea now. And so they, they, they said, they, they don't get this at all. Why are we going back to Judea? I don't understand why we're going back to Judea. And I don't understand why we're going back to wake up a man. And he says, well, this is because he died. But Jesus told me he wasn't going to die. What's going on? But what Jesus said was, this will not end in death. He didn't say he's not going to die. He says, it's not going to end there. Because Jesus has the ability, being God on earth, to say it doesn't end at death. We don't, but he does. 
So he was going to teach his disciples something really, really important about the power of God. But here's what happens. They're going back to Judea. They don't even care about Lazarus. He was, you know, forget Lazarus. Do you remember the stones? They were trying to kill you, Jesus. And, and then Thomas, I love Thomas, who is also sometimes called Didymus, says to his fellow disciples, well, let's go. So we may all die with him. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I guess we're all just going to go die. Might as well. He won't listen to reason. He's going to go back to Judea to wake up a sick man. Okay, let's all go back so we can die. And I'm thinking, man, that's great. There's a Didymus in every crowd. I'm glad to find that out because I always thought it was me. You know, I always thought that I, I attracted Didymuses because it seems like so many times I get this guy. You know, whenever I have this idea, I have this idea, and, and I get some guy saying like this. Because you are doomed. Tonight you will take the first step along a dark road from which there is no turning back. You are doomed. Yeah, I have that guy all the time in my group. Yeah, you're doomed. You try that, you're doomed. It's not going to work. It's good to know that Jesus had that guy in his crowd too. And it wasn't Judas. It was Thomas, who later becomes known as Doubting Thomas or Didymus. So here's a public a service announcement. This Easter, try not to be a Didymus. You know, that's, uh, that's not actually the sermon. just a kind of a side sermon, but, but trying to do that. So anyway, so Jesus has said, okay, let's go. And they're all going to go with them. We're all going to get killed. Of course they don't. Um, but uh, Jesus comes and he found that... that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's very key, by the way, in Jerusalem teaching and in, in Jewish teaching. At four days, you're allowed to actually bury him. Uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a reason for that. So by the fourth day, he's actually in the tomb. Boom, gone in the tomb. He's already been in there for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem. That's where he lived, about two miles off. I, I, I want to point out that Bethany and Jerusalem are about from here to the Boston Bridge away. Right? So this is how close he is now to Jerusalem. So you can see why they're a little bit, uh, a little bit nervous, right? And so uh, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, when she heard Jesus was coming, did not wait. She ran out to meet him. Because the one thing about Martha we knew from some other stories we've heard about her, she's type A personality, right? So of course Martha's not waiting. She hears Jesus is coming and she goes out. And she is not happy. She, she goes out to meet him. Mary stays at the house. And Martha, when she sees Jesus, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now I'm going to give a name to the first thief on the cross, if only. This is the most common thief that we find, if only. If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If only. How many if onlys do you have in your life? How many times do you say, you know, if only this hadn't happened, I'd be fine. Where were you, God, when this happened? You know, some of us were saved when it happened. Some of us, maybe it happened in our childhood before we were saved, but we still look back on now we know God loves us. Says, Where were you when this happened? If only you had prevented this from happening, then my brother would still be alive. I sent word to you in time. I believed. I told you he was dying. And you didn't come for four days? You know, must have been a long trip. It was about a 12-mile trip, by the way. You know, I couldn't walk that in a day. Four days before he gets there. He says, she says, so basically, she's saying, if only you would come sooner, you blew it. And so we tell God, my life is not going to be the same now because you showed up too late. You didn't show up at all. You let it happen anyway. How many things in your life do you have that if they just hadn't happened, everything would be fine? And you tell God that time and time again, 
But I want you to see what's happening here. She is standing in front of the creator of the universe and telling him it's too late. Nothing's too late for God. She's telling him, you can't do anything now. You're useless here. God's never useless. We're standing in front of the infinite God and telling him what he can't do. Instead of being thankful that we are in front of the infinite God. Right? Jesus has come for, for a lot of purposes, but one of them is, is a relationship with us. I'm like, I don't care about that relationship. You didn't do anything. But the relationship is the thing. Right? So Jesus is sitting there. And so Jesus says, look, your brother will rise again. He's trying to put her, you know, he's going to rise again. And now she shifts to the thief on the right. She says, oh, yeah, I know. Someday he'll rise again, the resurrection last day, blah, blah, blah. I know the, I know the scripture. And you see, the thief on the right's name is someday. So the thief on the left, if, if only, something happened in my past has ruined me. And the other thief is someday. Someday things will be okay, but not today. Someday I'll trust you, Lord, but not today. Someday I'll think you are who you say you are, truly and honestly, but not today. Maybe someday. So we're going to put our present moment on hold so that we can wait for someday. And until then, we're going to continue on doing what we do. So she's going to continue on with her mourning. She's going to continue on with all the burial plans. She's going to continue taking care of the people who came for the funeral. She's going to do all those things, even, Jesus, even though Jesus Christ is standing in front of her and saying, no, 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 he's going to live again. And she doesn't even ask him what he means. She assumes she knows someday, someday I'll do it, but not today. How many times do we flip between the thief on the left and the thief on the right and miss the Messiah in the middle? If only this hadn't happened, but it did. Someday, maybe, but not now. And God is standing in front of you and saying, why not now? I'm here now. What's wrong with now? But we don't see it. And Jesus says, look, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? Do you believe it or not? And she's like, eh, I don't know. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm a Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I came here that you might have life starting now, not someday. Now. Do you believe that or not? And she says, you know what? I have believed it. I have believed that you're the son of God. I have believed that you're the Christ, the son of God. See, a lot of times when we're hurt by unfulfilled expectations, we respond to believing God's love will only be shown to us later. I guess I don't get God's love on earth. I guess it's only later, someday in heaven, will I ever see God's love. But he's there right now in the midst of your trouble, standing in front of you right now, the Messiah, the creative God, and say, I'm here now. Oh, well, you're here too late. Oh, well, maybe someday. And we ignore the Messiah in the middle. And when she said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here, you know, whispered quietly, you know. And so as soon as she heard it, she got up and go and everybody started following because they figured that they must be, you know, she, she must be going someplace. So they, they got up and they followed her out, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to weep. But when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True statement, by the way, if Jesus had chosen to heal him, but there was no guarantee that he would be healed anyway. Jesus didn't, unlike what some people think, Jesus didn't necessarily heal every sick person that he saw. 
he never had a prayer not answered. But you know, he when he went to the pool of Bethesda, which was effectively a hospital for for terminally ill and terminally sick people, he walked past a bunch of sick people, healed one guy, and walked past a bunch of sick people on the way out. There's no guarantee. You know, God God works in His mysterious ways. So it's probable. Certainly, Jesus wanted to. He could have healed him. But she says, if you'd been here, you would have healed him. And if you'd healed him, he wouldn't be dead right now. So she's kind of the same place that her sister is. And then I want to show you this. Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews came, and they were weeping. And I want you to see this something. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, okay, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then you guys probably know this verse because this is like, weirdly, this is like a bar bet. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? These have drinks that you could win for these, knowing these trivial things. Uh, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Okay. But I want to show you something. Jesus is there for one reason, to raise Lazarus for the dead. He told his disciples four days ago, this isn't going to end with death. There'll be death, but this isn't going to end with death. He knows what he's about to do. And yet, he weeps. Why? See, this is the thing that I think that sometimes we don't understand. Why do you weep? You weep because you were created in the image of a God who weeps. That's why. These emotions you have, God gave them to you. And if you don't think heaven weeps, you're not paying attention. That's a misinterpretation of a scripture in Revelation. The, the scripture in Revelation says one day he will wipe away all tears and there will be no more crying. But I believe heaven weeps. Jesus did. And he saw this pain and he knows this. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he also knows this, Lazarus will die. And he was never meant to. Mary will die. Martha will die. You will die. You weren't meant to. Do you understand? When he created us, that wasn't his plan. Sin has corrupted the world and brought death. He didn't want that. He didn't want this weeping over losing people. He never wanted that. Sin brought that into the world. And so he sees the effect of sin on his, his friends and his family and the people he loves. He weeps. He weeps with them. God weeps with you too. Don't ever think God is happy or pleased with bad things that happen in your life because he sees some greater good that's just fine. And he, God weeps with you. I want you to know that. So Jesus, being deeply moved, came to the tomb, and now it was a cave, and a sto stone was lying against it. This is actually a foreshadowing of what will happen in, a, in just a little while to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says, remove the stone. I love Martha. She says, Lord, <laughs> it's been four days. It's going to stink if we roll that away. I don't think you want to see this. You certainly don't want to smell it. I, I think we would just leave the, leave the stone there. It, it, it is just... Just amazing. And Jesus says, did I not say to you that if you will believe, you'll see the glory of God? Uh, did I not tell you to do that? Did, did I tell you, just believe in me? And, 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 and here I am right now in front of the tomb, and you're still not believing in me. Jesus arrives, and we're still saying, eh, I don't think you could do it. This, this is out of your wheelhouse, God. Don't think you got this. We try to limit the infinite God by our imagination. God, I have all kinds of problems here. You know, I've done the math. If you just give me $10,000, uh, I will, uh, I will have everything I need. I've got it. I've got it all figured out. It's just, just saying, God, help me. You know, just, instead of just going to God and letting him use his creative and imagination, because sometimes God helps us in ways that make us laugh. Like, oh, I never saw that coming. You know, it's just sometimes amazing the, the, the ways he can sometimes do things that just like, wow. And he's standing in front of Martha right now and saying this effectively. I am about to perform the greatest miracle of my ministry, 
up until the moment he will raise himself from the dead, this is the greatest miracle he is about to do for you and your family to build your faith forever. Can you believe in me for a little while longer? Just a little while longer, Martha. Stop looking at the thief on the right. Stop looking at the thief on the left. The Messiah is standing here in front of you. Can you trust him for just a little while? Something you need to know. The infinite God is never out of time. He can't be. He invented time. The infinite God is never out of time. So they remove the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and says, I love this prayer. This is my, my favorite prayer Jesus prays. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but because the people standing around, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. It's like, I'm talking to them now, God. You know, this is just, this is just for their benefit. And when he had said these things, he cried out, says, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, still bound hand and foot wrappings. His face was wrapped around a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Listen, if you always focus on what went wrong in the past, or your hope is only for what might happen in the future, you will be blind to what Jesus Christ standing in front of you right now wants to do. The miraculous power of the Messiah is there. And all we want to do is look left and right. We need to focus on him. In, in Psalm 46, writer says this, God's our refuge and our strength, a very present help. See, our God came here for us. Those other gods, they got dead gods. You know, these other religions, dead gods. You have to try to work some kind of a miracle to go listen to them or talk to them. And you have to go someplace or put yourself in some state. Not ours. Our God came here. That's why he's alive. Our God came to us. Emmanuel, God with us. Right? He's here. He is present right now. Not tomorrow. Right now. God is present. Our very present, and that actually could be translated abundantly available in our time of trouble, abundantly available. He's not just here, he's here with all his power. Where God's presence is, his power is. He doesn't walk one place without his power. You don't have his power without his presence, and you don't have his presence without his power. We need God's presence in our lives. In uh, Philippians, uh, Paul writes this, look, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. He was rich, by the way, before he became a Christian, very rich. He gave all that up. He said, I've been rich, I've been poor. I know how to live both ways. Uh, in, every, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled. I've also learned the secret of going hungry. I've, I've had food. I've been starving, right? Both having abundance and suffering need. I, I, I got it. He says, I do both of these things. I've lived through both these things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that Jesus Christ is standing in front of you saying, can you believe in me? Can you take your attention off the if only? Can you take your attention off this maybe someday? Can you focus on me? Because what I have to give you is better than you can imagine. Can you believe in me, though, so you can receive it? Listen, Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. Would you all please pray with me?